On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Fairly varied, but not terribly varied, uh, slew of, of stories on the front pages uh, of today's papers. Uh, and there's a little bit of a contradiction between two of the front pages. So we'll start with them first. We'll start with the Sunday Times, which says that the government is going to hold off on implementing a further cost of living package until Budget Day in October. And that's despite tens of thousands of people taking to the streets to show their anger at the cost of fuel, fu- uh, fu- food, fuel and rent. Uh, marches in Dublin, Cork, Galway, Limerick and Sligo, organised by unions and opposition parties, were staged yesterday. Ministers plan to identify unspent funds from this year so that welfare bonuses or other one-off payments in the budget can be paid in the autumn instead of January. But the clear thrust of direction, we are told by the Sunday Times, is that there are not going to be any new measures announced before that budget, which is likely to be on the 9th or 10th of October. Uh, compare and contrast that with the front page of the Irish Mail on Sunday, which says the government plans to bring in a Christmas bonus-style social welfare payment in July and extend fuel allowances as part of a new series of measures to combat the spiralling cost of living, which we announced in the coming weeks. The move comes as economists warn of an unprecedented four interest rate hikes before the year's end, and it's one of several anti-inflationary budget measures planned for next month and for October. Some of them will be announced in a summer economic statement, which is due ahead of the dull recess in mid-July. But we're also told that in a revolutionary overhaul of the budget process, many measures announced in October, like social welfare and fuel supports, will come into effect immediately. So the Mail on Sunday says something is going to be done in July, the Sunday Times says nothing is going to be done until October. Um, Also on the front page, by the way, of the Sunday Times, around a thousand corporate vehicles set up in Ireland over the past seven years are controlled by partners in secrecy jurisdictions, the Sunday Times can reveal. Hundreds of Irish limited partnerships are led by people or corporations based in the likes of the Seychelles or Belize are formed with general partners in Cyprus, the Isle of Man, the British Virgin Islands, Panama and Bermuda. Overall, there are 948 of these limited partnerships uh, located in 14 secrecy jurisdictions, uh, including one called Bitsane LP, uh, which was behind uh, an international cryptocurrency scam that promoted its Irish registration before defrauding its users and disappearing with all of their investments. And although Bitsane's offshore partners were not based in secrecy jurisdictions, its use of this limited partner structure has been made, uh, made enforcement virtually impossible because any investigation then has to encompass several countries, including Ireland, the UK, Lithuania, Hong Kong and Belarus. Very fascinating story, a joint investigation with Bellingcat, uh, which is on the inside of the Sunday Times if you're picking up that paper this morning. Um, the Sunday Independent also leads today with some news about the cost of living, uh, but not about the state response, rather about the increase in demands uh, for state supports, because we're told that calls to the state's money and debt advice service have now reached levels not seen since the depths of the recession a decade ago, as middle-income households struggle to deal with uh, skyrocketing price increases. In May, the Money Advice and Budgeting Service, that's MABS, feel that the largest number of phone calls to its national helpline in a single month since January 2012, and calls are now coming in from people who are in work but still struggling to afford their basic needs. The service handled 2,647 calls in May alone. That is up 18% from the same month a year ago, and it's more than double the number of calls that it was receiving in May 2020 during the first COVID lockdown. The last time that MABS received this many calls in a single month was during the depths of the recession when unemployment was running at 15%. Uh, And also on the front page of the Sunday Independent, and God forgive me for only raising it, we're not even at six minutes past 11 this morning. But just in case you were wondering, uh, the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, has suggested that mandatory mask wearing could be reintroduced on public transport and in shops as Ireland grapples with the summer wave of COVID-19. The return of public health restrictions is not under consideration, not under consideration by public health officials. But Mr Donnelly notably did not rule out the reimposition of the mask mandate, which was dropped at the end of February. Uh, Speaking to the Sun Independent this weekend, he said, Is it possible that I could get a recommendation for public transport or for retail that, yes, we do recommend now that we move to mandatory 
military mask wearing. You couldn't rule that out, he said. It's not where we're at, he says, but you can never say never. Uh, and a new requirement for mask wearing would require new legislation in the Dáil, which would make for an interesting debate by itself. Uh, and finally for now, the front page of the Business Post. You may remember some of the reporting that the Business Post did um, last summer when there was talk about uh, institutional investment funds, so-called cuckoo funds, uh, which were buying large tracts of brand new housing developments, which were intended perhaps uh, to be put in the market for first-time buyers so that aspiring homeowners might have a chance of being able to own their own home and how these institutional funds were coming in and sweeping all of them up before anyone else ever had a chance. And you might remember that the government introduced a 10% stamp duty on that mass purchasing of properties in an attempt to try and ward them off. Well, it turns out today via the Business Post that may not have been as successful as the government imagined. Because figures released to the Business Post by the Revenue Commissioner show that at the end of May 2022, the 10% stamp duty levy had been applied to the sale of 351 residential units with the stamp duty totaling 10.5 million, which means that institutional investors are still paying around 105 million euro to buy the likes of 351 homes despite higher stamp duty, seemingly because the gap between the amount that they're paying and the amount they can get back in rent is so significant that they basically are not disinhibited uh, by the stamp duty that was introduced uh, to see just that. Uh, so that's your tour of what's in the front pages of this morning's newspapers. We're joined in the studio by Liam Weeks, who's a lecturer in the Department of Politics at University College Cork, uh, and by Liz Dunphy, who is a reporter with the Irish Examiner. Uh, good morning to you both. Um, Liam, it's, it's hard to know. I'll start with yourself on, on the cost of living. Um, I don't know whether there might be some unspoken uh, coordination between the story that we see in the front page of the Mail on Sunday and the front page of the Sunday Times, but it says that one of them seems pretty clear that we're not going to get any cost of living measures this side of the budget, which is still four months away, and the other seems fairly cocksure that it's going to be in, in four weeks' time. So one of them's going to look pretty silly in about a month. Yeah, I was puzzled myself, Gavin. I'm wondering, you know, does different parties in government or different parties leaking leaking different things. I should say, in the Mail on Sunday, I was a bit confused by the headline, and maybe that that's my lack of economics expertise. But if we're talking about increasing welfare and so on and increasing allowances, giving people more money, mm. unfortunately, we know that's only going to increase prices. So it is kind of strange when they say this is, I mean, the headline reads, welfare bonus to curb soaring costs. We just know from a basic economics 101, if you give people more money, the person who's selling the product is going to increase the prices. And that's why, for example, in, I think in a different piece, I think in the Business Post, there's um, an interview or a report on Gabriel McAuliffe, the central bank mm. governor, and he talks about the fact is they're going to increase interest rates. And this is probably what you know needs to happen. I mean, for me, when we read about the cost of living crisis, the one issue that seems to be seeping through is inflation. Yeah. I think inflation, because this is the big scary new thing. You know, we, we've talked about house prices, we've talked about the cost of mortgages, but people have been able to control that because interest rates have been so low. I've, and the thing is, this is what's worrying, um, Gavin, is this is not just an Irish phenomenon. I read in the UK, it's predicted inflation will hit 11% in October. And you 11%. see, and, and it's not just for this year. They're talking about 8% this year, 7% next year. So prices price-wise in four years' time could be 40% higher. So if you think things are bad now... <laughs> Yikes. Um, to talk to me about the, that mention of rising uh, interest rates because a lot of people might might get what you described there as Economics 101, this idea that if you put more money into yeah. people's pockets, they've got more to spend. So naturally then people charge because they think they can get away with charging a little bit more. What's the impact of higher interest rates? Is that intended to take some heat out of the economy but does that mean that we end up in some kind of recession or what's the impact of that? Well, essentially, the, the, an interest rate is the price of money. 
So the higher an interest rate, the more expensive it is to borrow money. So we're seeing this, for example, I think house price inflation is 14% this month. Mm. And one of the reasons why is because it's still very cheap to borrow money. I'm sure all our parents and our fathers out there will tell us stories about when they were buying the first place, how expensive it was to actually buy money. So, I mean... we. We've probably known this has been coming because the European Central Bank has said, look, we need to slow things down. Mm. Um, of course, the problem is, of course, it's, this is going to come at a rather unfortunate time. Usually we'd, we would have this, Gavin, when an economy is taking off, when, when, when there's a boom and we need to curb spending. But of course, this is at a time when, people, when, when some people may not have enough money in their pocket and they don't want to see this. Mm. So it's probably not coming at the best possible time. That sounds, uh, sounds pretty grim. Uh, Liz, sorry to bring you in on that uh, fairly glum note, but you can understand why people would be uh, so so head up in this idea of getting some sort of help soon and that maybe they're not going to, to quibble about whether it comes as some sort of a tax cut or some sort of welfare increase because they're struggling now and they want action now and they don't see why they could have to wait until the budget in four months' time. Yeah, I mean, as we've seen over the weekends, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people have taken to the streets to kind of demand action sooner than the October budget. But the government has consistently said... Um, that they're not going to chase inflation and that they are going to wait until the October budget mm. to bring in any any further cost of living, you know, kind of um, help yeah. helps for people like that. Is that one of those things where it's like anything else that the government does out of sequence that they can't say they're going to do it until they're going to do it? That if you said now you were going to take some measures next month and you'd spend the entire month waiting to find out what they were and that people would actually sort of price in the difference. I mean, it's a little bit like the cut in excise on petrol and diesel. They announced it or it, it got word got out about 36 hours before it was happening. So then you had garages that were doing their best to try and absorb the cost before it even came in there. So maybe you can't tell people that far in advance. It's true, perhaps. And Leo Varadkar did say during the week as well that the door was slightly open, you know, that it wasn't shut completely to potentially introducing some kind of a mini budget or measures Mm. prior to October. Like, I think people, you know, as the MABS report shows, people are struggling out there Mm. and a lot of people do seem to really need help on to, just to cover basics like fuel and food and, and you know, mortgages. Um, as Liam has just spoken about, interest rates are going up. The central bank has already announced that rates are rising from next month. Mm. And there was actually a r- report, I think it was an economist called um, Alan Quinn who said that he predicted that there would be five um, increases in interest rates over the next year, you know, before the end of the year alone, which would be worrying for people, particularly yeah. with variable rate mortgages or people who need credit or yeah. want access well, to credit. Well, it's not, not always necessarily, yeah, those, those are trackers either. It is those who have variable rates as well, because I think for every every quarter of a percent that they increase, which is basically the minimum amount that they go up, doesn't it add something like 70 or 80 euro per month to the average mortgage repayment? So you do that four or five times over, Liam, and then suddenly people who are maybe a little bit comfortable right now, aside from any more inflation in the next 12 months, and even interest rates alone in their mortgage could be a huge hindrance. Yeah, and this is why our friends in the public sector unions have been negotiating for the increases. And I, I read... Um, um, yeah, there's an article actually in yesterday's Irish Times Jared Howland talking about I think private prudence and public public waste almost mm. um, but this is going to be a very real issue it's not just going to be obviously in the public sector you know and essentially just to get to the basics for people as you know inflation rising inflation means your money is worth less yeah. you know something you were able to buy for one euro now costs you 140 so therefore are you going to need more money I should say as well though I mean we have to you know take into account 
the country is not, um, I don't want to paraphrase what probably Michal Martin is going to say after news, <laughs> the country is not all doom and gloom. I know I've spoke a bit about the cost of living crisis. I read an excellent report this week and it was, it was, a, it was a, a survey of consumer behaviour. 67% of people said they intended staying at a hotel this summer. It's a priority for them. 52% said they intend flying somewhere for a holiday. That was 20% above the European average. So I think what's happening in Ireland is there probably is a bit of a divide. You know, certainly there's, you know, the, the phone calls into MABS are on the increase. But we shouldn't ignore as well. Mm. We've seen this with house prices. Like, at, while interest rates are low, where is the money coming from to fuel uh, the, the, the rise in house prices? Yeah. There obviously is money there. We, there are several reports throughout the papers. They talk about people have been saving for the last two years over COVID. And I suppose that's one of the things we don't really want to see in Irish politics, this divide. Because like, it was noticeable yeah. who organised the protests on the streets in Dublin. It was particular parties. So we're seeing this kind of left, left, almost left-right so divide, what, really. So there's a split that almost emerged over the pandemic where you had those in the professional classes who were still able to work from home and still had their income. And then those who, who worked in manufacturing or other hard labour classes who, who couldn't work yeah. and find themselves. So then one, one class of people has savings that can buffer them through all of this and the other class is already put to the pin of their collar. Well, we can't ignore the fact that there, there were massive queues at Dublin Airport. They're probably, you know, Dublin Airport is probably still really busy. I haven't flown out myself. I can't speak for what for what Cork Airport is, is like. It's not it's not like the recession, you know, of 2008 to kind of 2012. It's mm. certainly not like that. Um, what was interesting, though, of course, is if we had spoken about this before the, rece- before the recent couple of, uh, before the inflation and the cost of living crisis, we would have said, what do we need to do in this world? We need to cut consumption. We need to stop our use of energy and oil. Now, there's only one way to do that and people won't like to hear that. There's only one way to cut oil, oil usage is to, is to raise the price, I'm sorry. The, how many billions of food do we waste each year, we're told? I think we're told we waste about 60 billion worth of food. There was an excellent piece in the Sunday Times, I think it was called it was by Fio, or the Sunday Independent by Fiona Sherlock. It was called Sewing and Sewing. And it was about make do, making do and mend. And just this, I think, we, we always say don't waste a crisis. Mm. And I know it's extremely tough. I don't want to sound like some public sector worker in his cushy, cosy job, <laughs> and which I'm sure people... <laughs> some are, tenured lecturer in a university exactly. who's totally absorbed from But in terms of, you know, we shouldn't waste a crisis in terms of thinking about our approach to things and thinking in terms about, you know, can we use this as an opportunity, for example, as Fiona Sherlock mentioned, in terms of growing our own vegetables, in terms of if something is broken, don't dump it. We're thinking about this whole waste mm. culture. You know, and I hate to say it, there's only one way to lower the, the kind of use of fuel is by raising prices of fuel. So in theory that shouldn't be a bad thing. So yeah. uh, but no one's really talking about that in the press okay, I noticed w- today. W- would you do Liz a favour though and not try to like have, have us all feeling too glum before I go back to her to <laughs> ask her about her thoughts uh, that's in the papers. Um, Liz th- there's a lot I liked some of the anecdotes that were in the papers today about how even like the likes of chip shops are finding it harder to get the products in or that they're they're worried now if they're going to have to pass it on. Uh, plenty of coverage about the impact of the cost of living. Anything that stood out for you this morning? Um there were, yeah, there was plenty about the cost of living absolutely in there this morning. Um, some things that stood out, I think, um, I think definitely, you know, the fact that that so many more people are calling for help from mm. MABS, that it reached, the, like, the, the, the number of calls, um, you know, reached levels, they were higher than, than what they had been yeah. during the COVID, you know, the, the first yeah. COVID lockdown. Well, for for which the levels was, to, to be as high now as they were, like, when unemployment was, was three times higher. Like, it's a real illustration that now people who, who are earning and earning decent money just can't afford to make ends meet, which is a pretty pretty dire situation when, as Liam has been pointing out, it's probably only going to keep going one way. Absolutely. It definitely looks like it's going to keep going that way. And um, one thing that they did point out um, in the, the, from that MABS uh, research as well 
was that it was people in work that were calling for help, you know, and that that was a major change in the kind of demographic of callers that they mm. were getting in. Um so pretty, it's pretty, I mean, I, I can understand why you, it even takes a second to try and find something because there, there's such a, a variety of it. I mean, I know I said when I was going through the front pages that there's, you know, that there's a little bit of variety, but they're all kind of zeroing it's, in on the same thing. Yeah, I just noticed one thing in terms of this interview with the chief of Tesco Ireland. Yeah. Again, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm not an economist, so yeah. it, but it sounds He's like I'm to the talking about yeah. economics. Um like when prices go up, we would imagine consumption goes down, but actually the head of Tesco Ireland says uh, consumption is up 10% on what it was pre-COVID levels. Um, I so noticed despite things being more expensive, people yeah, are still buying so more. I'm just wondering, uh, this is a very strange time, Gavin, you know, we're wondering again, I mean, for example, if we even think about fuel consumption, I'd love to see some reports, you know, our, our garbage is quieter. Mm. You know, we don't actually kind of see that. You know, I'd love to know what's going on in terms of, we, we know yeah. that, for example, even in, we, in the way in which we approach energy cost prices, no one talks now about the price of, of DSB has gone up. People talk about their bills going up, which is not the same thing. You know, if a product gets more expensive, usually the, the point is you're supposed to lower your actual consumption of that product. Mm. Just one point I did notice that Tesco Iron Chief said, I forget his name and apologise to him, but he said that people are shopping uh, maybe a bit less in their basket, but they're shopping more often. Now, I hate to say it, but if you're shopping more often, how do you get to the shop? You need yeah. to use your yeah, car. Yeah, so you're taking more journeys. You know? yeah. So if we think about your habits we learned during COVID, you know during COVID people were told, try and only shop once a week. Mm. You know, if things are more expensive, then it's a bit more difficult. Maybe people need to think about, you know, the, about our whole approach... Uh, to what's going on because yeah. if there is a crisis you know what we're supposed to do in a, cri- in a crisis is question our behaviour question is our behaviour uh, sustainable do we need to do something different Yeah, uh, Ken Murphy by the way is the Ken chief executive Murphy, of Tesco yeah. and he's speaking to, uh, to Ellie Donnelly on page 4 today um, of the Business Post um, Liz to go back to where we started about whether there's going to be anything this side of the budget um, the government would have you tell and I'm sure when Mio Martin's in here in about 40 minutes time he's going to say exactly the same thing that the government is talking to trade unions and civil society groups and it can't make any rash decisions and it needs to make sure that it has a consensus about what it's going to do before it tries to do anything. Um, you can probably understand that a lot of people wouldn't have huge patience for that because they can't afford for this, there to be some kind of broader scientific or economic consensus because they need actions right now. So the government's always on a, a bit of a loser when it's asking people to try and hold tight as the bills keep getting higher. That is absolutely true. And it is very difficult when you're out there trying to make ends meet, you know, week by week to hear that, you know, there may be measures in October and mm. those may be put in place in, in January or who knows. Um, there there does seem to be a push um, by government, though, to ensure that measures that are, you know, mooted to be brought in in October, that they will be, mm. be introduced, you know, in the autumn as opposed to waiting months down the line. Yeah. Uh, I did, by the way, I, I did my homework before I was coming in this morning because I wanted to check whether excise duties had gone up or down because you know you hear sometimes whether the, the government is facing an excise windfall or a VAT windfall. Yeah. Excise, despite the government cutting it for petrol and diesel in the middle of March, is still pretty much year on year exactly where it was last year. So the government has foregone a lot of income in cutting that and still pretty much treading water. So maybe there's some scope for them uh, to do a little bit more. Um, I do need to take a break, but just b- before I do, Liam, um, you could argue that the government itself, and I, I'm, I'm wary of using these words, the government itself is is also a a victim of inflation because, for, for argument's sake, you uh, decide that you need to go and build social housing. So you set aside 100 million euro to build 300 houses and then inflation takes effect in the meantime and suddenly your 100 million euro isn't going to build yeah. 300 houses. It's only going to build 250, but you need the 300. Wouldn't there be an argument to be made that somewhere between the budgets that actually the government would have been right to go back to the drawing board and draw up a new budget because clearly it had expected to deliver all these services that people need and now yeah. they're not going to be able to do? 
I think they say when is the best time to plant a tree and they say 20 years ago um, we're, t- we're thinking about one of the projects that has rapidly increased in price the National Children's Hospital mm. and we think about Michal Martin's predecessor Bertie Hearn wanted to build it in central Dublin near the Mash or how much less it would have cost in relation to that it's a massive problem facing the government I'm just amazed I think we, there was a report out a couple of weeks ago how much it cost even just to build one unit yeah. um, it's, it's, it's a huge issue for the government and you know we, we, were, we, were, we were sold this line during the last recession that it's a global, it's a global issue. It's, yeah. it's it's out of the government's hands. I even see in relation to ex- excise duties. Um, there's uh, Pascal Dunn who was talking about further uh, cuts in the excise duty to bring the price of fuel down. But I mean, what's going to be the reaction? That was done and that lowered it by twenty cents. But mm. here in Cork, it's about two twenty. I'm not sure what it is. Yeah, no, about the same. Yeah, it was yeah. in Forecourt this morning. It was pretty much the same here as there, which is about now close to two twenty a liter for for diesel. Yeah, even, and so, what's yeah. remarkable is you know back in the past it used to be a lot cheaper in rural areas but it's pretty much the same price I know if I drive home to my parents it's actually probably cheaper in Cork than in parts of Mayo so it's remarkable how the price is kind of focusing very much on this kind of 220 but can I just say as well I noticed they're saying now there was a report by the ESRI this week that energy costs are 10% at the moment of people's budgets but that's in the summer you know, when people are in theory using less energy, whether it's for heat, whether it's just for generally driving to work, maybe they're gone on holiday. Mm. So and we're, we're just wondering, imagine what it's going to be like um, in the winter. Yeah. Uh, a couple of texts coming into 53106. Uh, somebody says, it's not all bad. My car insurance is down 100 euro plus my monthly prescription is down about 20 euro. Uh, so fair play to that person for being able to get their insurance down because I don't think everyone else is getting the same uh, level of, of cuts to that. Uh, and someone else says, hi Gavin, I've saved quite a bit of money towards a house deposit during the past two years, but it's of no benefit in, in me to me in trying to find or afford a house if everyone else also has a lump of savings we may as well not have it all boats raised just to the benefit of the developer's bank balance that's coming from John someone else says hope they're shopping more often now because they're cycling or walking and they can only carry so much at a time Uh, which is what someone else Michael on Twitter says uh, please probe that behaviour more because he says that he has neighbours who he knows are struggling to make ends meet and they're complete slaves to their cars he says people want to drive every journey no matter how short that's madness to be fair I I don't know whether everyone has other alternatives you don't know whether people are in, in the of their health or have full mobility you never really know what, what's available to them but percent of car journeys are less than two kilometres that's CSO data yeah. it only takes 20 minutes to walk two kilometres yeah. uh, food for thought uh, it is 11.24 when we come back we're going to be talking more about what's in the papers with Liam and Liz when we're back after this uh, 11.28 this Sunday morning Gavin Riley with you coming live uh, from News Talks Cork Studios at the Republic of Work this morning uh, lots of texts coming in about the cost of living uh, one texter says my job is in the same place now as it was before the crisis started I commute 1300 kilometres a week Safe fuel how? Question mark. Diesel was 109 in 2020 and it's €2.13 now. That person has basically doubled their costs for a commute, which is pretty already lengthy, 130 kilometres each way and they have to make that journey 10 times a week. Um, extraordinary stuff. Somebody else says, slightly controversial comment, but for someone who had a mortgage back in the 90s when interest rates were in high double figures, I don't remember handouts from government and we just had to scale back. We skipped holidays abroad, we ate at home, etc. Today, people seem to want to be able to continue to do everything they're previously doing. Airports packed, petrol stations busy, restaurants impossible to get into, shops are full. After COVID, I think people based on populist party rhetoric are just defaulting to governments to bail them out as opposed to people managing their own budgets. That comes in from Paul uh, to 53106. On that point, Liam... Um, there's a bit of me that wonders maybe that Paul has has something of a, of a a good point there because maybe over COVID people now expect that governments are able to to do anything or do everything or that they can interfere in your lives in ways that we previously didn't think were possible and now people expect when it comes to a different crisis it's not a health crisis it's an economic one people think the governments can still just intervene and make everything okay again even when they don't necessarily have that power 
Yeah, I'm thinking of one clear issue, for example, in the way in which the government uh, nationalised almost every single uh, part of the health service. Mm. You know, that was a remarkable issue, even in terms of the fact they were able to get, you know, the, the, the COVID payment to everyone. But that feeds into two points. I'd have, you know, there, there is an argument there about in terms of when something happens in terms of altering behaviour. It does feed back into the kind of stats I mentioned in terms of has behaviour been modified in terms of people's priorities. It, well, it's fair to say that I think your caller mentioned in terms of when they got a mortgage in the 90s. Our demands have changed. Our expectations. Ireland is a wealthier country mm. than it was, you know, uh, 30 years ago. And so if we're a wealthier country, we expect more things and people essentially don't want to change their behaviour. I think what we saw during COVID it certainly did alter our perception because for so long we were told by the government, you know, by, by governments nationwide, uh, worldwide, not just the Irish government, that, you know, governments can't do things. There are certain forces at play in the world. And yes, if you think about how the Irish government managed COVID in terms of restricting our behaviour, in terms of fairness, keeping debts down and so on, in terms of keeping keeping people supported in terms of the COVID payment and in terms of almost nationalising the health services, mm. which we're told is a, could never happen. Yeah. But, you know, it, happened almost, happen. it yeah. happened almost overnight. Yeah. You know, which is just like an amazing uh, feast. Yeah, uh, one other area in which the cost of living is really going up, and we'll, we'll move on to housing on this, uh, a text comes in from Dave in Burr, who says that my rent is going up by €120 Euro per month in August. He says a temporary rent freeze would save private tenants a big pinch. I'm on disability and I can't afford any extras. That is from Dave in Burr, texting 53106. Um, on that note, um, Liz Unfi, who's with us from the Irish Examiner as well in studio, alongside Liam Weeks from UCC. Um, the President this week uh, describing housing uh, not, not merely as a crisis, uh, but as a disaster. A little bit of pushback from the government, it seems. No one willing to put their name to it. But do you reckon the problem is that the president maybe spoke out of turn or because the president was correct in what he said? That's a good question, indeed. Um, I think a lot of people out there would say that the president was very correct in his comments. Um, I think a lot of your listeners would, would probably agree mm. with his position on that. Um, there, you know, there is a, a massive problem out there, obviously, as everybody's aware in housing. Um, the central bank just announced that like house prices are now at, like almost the, the Celtic Tiger peaks in 2007. So I think they're, they've now reached, I think, 98% of, right. of prices of, of what they were back then. So, you know, it is very difficult out there. Um, there was an interesting report actually on the the front page of the business post the sunday business post today mm. which i think a lot of listeners will will also be quite angry about um which found that 350 homes were still being built by invest still being bought by investment funds um they spent over 100,000 um on, on those and that's coming a year after new measures were introduced um to increase the stamp duty mm. that investment funds would have to pay pay in a bid to kind of ward off um, investor funds basically bulk buying homes that could be going to first time buyers and you know people who have a desperate housing need in Ireland yeah. you know of their own yeah. um, so like that that levy basically if you were going to buy more than 10 houses um, within a 12 year period it didn't apply to apartments but it, it applied to houses mm. then stamp duty would be 10 times higher basically it would be 10% um, but that obviously isn't stopping all investor funds from continuing to bulk buy because you know, three hundred and fifty homes have now already um, yeah. been sold. As as I think it was the revenue commissioner. Yeah, and um, I think that that's by the end of of uh, May twenty twenty two. So I, I imagine I don't know whether that's properties in total or whether it's properties um, just that have been um, sold in the in the first five months of this year. Um, the piece by Killian Woods does point out that the the average uh, amount that these investors are spending per home 
is about €299,000. Compare that to the CSO's figures, which show the median price of a property in the Irish residential market is €286,000. So they are paying slightly above the, the middle of the road asking price. But clearly, Liam, it seems that they're completely able to do so. I'd imagine it's because the difference between the amount that it takes to rent and the amount that you can get in for, or the amount it takes to buy versus the amount you get in from rent, the gap is now so big that they can afford to stomach a, a huge hit in purchasing because they'll get their money back in jig time. Yeah, I mean, and this is the point that President Higgins talked about during the week. I think he he, he talked about, this is almost going back to the poor law era and mm. he talked about these investment funds but again this is not a question unique to Ireland I read a separate piece uh, in the in the English version of the Sunday Times today it was by Rod Little and he was talking about the argument that essentially in the UK they're also trying to get rid of private landlords but okay. a consequence which we've kind of seen when we got rid of bedsits here he said it might make 11 million people homeless because this and this is the kind of issue now, How would it make them homeless because the property doesn't disappear like the well, property is still there surely ab- Absolutely but he's talking about the, the argument in terms of price you know out in terms of, of in terms of the in, in increase it's going to have in terms of rent, you're going to price out a certain type of individual who can only afford a certain rent. And also, I suppose this is kind of what Michael T. Higgins talked about. Some of these investment funds are more focused on the actual capital appreciation. Mm. Um, and in relation to that, I noticed the Sunday Times didn't hold back on their editorial. Yeah, uh, the they're, they're, read, they're pretty uncompromising yeah. about whether it was appropriate for Michael T. Higgins the to speak as he did. President is making his own rules as Doyle plays by the book, and it says, "Imagine if Peter Casey had won the." election in 2018 and become Ireland's 10th president. Now imagine that at the opening of a facility for young adults in Kildare during the fourth year of his term President Casey let fly with some off-the-cuff remarks that the dependence on the welfare state isn't a crisis anymore, it's a disaster and the sense of entitlement it has created is our great, great failure he thunders. And it says, picture the scene in the Doyle next day as TDs from Sinn Féin Labour and people before profit would argue with the Cam Corla about whether the Oireachtas should remove the president for stated misbehaviour. Well, would they though? Like, would you have opposition parties lining up to impeach or to, to remove any other president if, A, they'd been elected and had the same mandate as Michael D. Higgins currently mm-hmm. does, but B, if most people agreed with their assessment that it's gone beyond a crisis, that it is now yeah. a disaster? Would it, would, it be, would it be any more outrageous for anyone else to say exactly the same thing? Well, I think there's a bit of a uh, lack of understanding of the role of the president. Nowhere in the Constitution does it say the president can't issue his or her own opinion. Mm. You know, the pre- he has human rights. He's allowed to have freedom of speech like anyone else, yeah, isn't he? Yeah, he said plenty of things in relation to, let's say, Elon Musk in relation, relation to Fidel Castro and so on. Um, and do you know what? A bit of debate in the Irish kind of political system is no harm. Now the question is of course is in relation to his motives. You know we have to remember this was an individual who was a member of the Common Market Group that opposed EEC membership. Um, which is, you know, a kind of issue that's not talked about before. And we also have to remember that the president comes from a partisan background. I think that's the issue that some critics have been focusing on, mm. that this was a person who, as we know, he's an independent now. Yeah. But, you know, he's a sure, long-time... We, we, we knew what his, his views were on, on the role of the state in society long before he ever got anywhere near the Oris. Yeah, I mean, but the question is, why did he pick this particular issue? I suppose, obviously, the government feel this is, you know, look, it's easy for the president to get, you know, to get applause, to talk about this issue. No one is going to stand up and say, president, it's not a disaster. Mm. Um, uh, Liz, it's, 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 there's two schools of thought actually it's, it's interesting when you see an example like this happen that it divides people into two camps because there's people who say that it's not the role of the president to get into day-to-day politics you have a government and a Taoiseach and ministers and TDs who can get in all, into all of that you don't need the fellow up in the oars getting interviewing as well and then you have people on the other hand who say, well, actually, the president is the one guy who was elected by all of the citizens equally. He's got more of a mandate to to talk about the country than the Taoiseach or a minister or anyone else. So they feel like he should be completely off the leash and he should be allowed to say anything you like. What do you think? 
I think that he, the the president has, he's obviously a fantastic orator and I think he's definitely really um, contributed a lot to kind of public debate in Ireland over the years since his tenure. Um, like I, I, I do understand the um, the controversy over this, these latest comments about the housing crisis, but you know, I, I kind of I agree with with Liam in a way that you know he he does have um you know he 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 has the right mm. to express his own opinion, and I think I think it has you know it's got us all talking about this issue, which is an issue at the forefront of so many people's minds, and I think in, it's enriching public debate in my <laughs> personal mm. view. Yeah. But is this, is, is this President Higgins' opinion as president or his own personal opinion? Because obviously there has to be well, a he line. He wasn't invited as just plain old Michael who lives in Dublin 8, but even he, though it's North But side, lawyers yeah. would argue that there, that there is a perspective on which it could be a personal opinion. You see, while he is allowed to give a certain opinion, if he was to criticise government policy, we know a previous president in the 1970s he criticised a particular uh, piece of legislation, I think the Official Secrets Act. Yeah, uh, or even just referred it to a court, I think. He just referred just, to it yeah. constitutionally proof. And, and, uh, and a minister had a go. And a minister had a go, called yeah. her a uh, thundering disgrace yeah. and so on. And the president felt the need to resign. So the question is, of course, he was very careful in his words, I think, because he criticised the crisis. He didn't criticise the, the specific government policy. I think Onamadi talks about this in relation to a president's soft powers. Yeah. You know, But we should say as well, the constitution is quite vague. People talk about the president of being a figurehead. The constitution doesn't actually say that. If you actually, there was a great study done a couple of years ago comparing the French and Irish presidents. And if you actually read the French constitution, it doesn't allocate many powers to the French president. The French president has expanded that role, the incumbent. Okay. So likewise, Michael T. Higgins... I think yeah. it's probably just playing with this, especially because, of course, he doesn't have to face election again. Uh, which is, is a handy uh, get out close that Michael D has that nobody else in politics has. Um, a couple of more texts on housing. Uh, someone says, I've been homeless for three years since my bedsit of 15 years was sold. That is from Bob in Dublin, which I suppose illustrates that actually, yes, sometimes if you take bedsits um, out of the market that people do end up homeless even though the property is still there. Uh, and somebody else, Pat, says, people keep mentioning investment funds, but the state, local authorities and staked-backed housing associations are competing themselves with first-time buyers in the market at twice the rate on the investment funds from what I read, which is an interesting point that maybe the state is competing with all those people as well. Uh, we're going to take another break. We're going to talk more about the Northern Ireland Protocol and whether we're ever going to be able to really say uh, that Brexit is done. We're going to be checking in with Shona Murray from Brussels when we're back after this. Still joined in studio by Liam Weeks, a lecturer in the Department of Government and Politics in UCC and Liz Dunphy, a reporter with the Irish Examiner. Actually, we were just talking through the break, uh, Liz, and it's good to sometimes those of us in the, in the D4 media bubble to get a little bit of a sense of, of what it is like outside of Dublin. Uh, is the rental situation as preposterous here in the real capital as it is in the uh, Actual capital. It's very difficult here as well. Absolutely, unfortunately, uh, for people out there, there was um, there was somebody who joined our office recently. He was coming down from Dublin, and he's been unable to move down because he hasn't been able to find suitable accommodation. There's a huge shortage of, of rental accommodation at the moment, and prices are high because obviously shortage is is um, restricted. Mm. Um, I think there's only 850 rental properties throughout the whole country available at the moment, so it's it's really limited. So it's difficult down here as well. You're looking at I think 1,000. 500 really for an average enough place to live and um, queues yeah. are out the door when viewings are available. So, so it is as bad then you it's have a difficult. viewing and then suddenly the ad has gone off the after in a couple of minutes quickly. and you've already got a whole line of people lined up. Absolutely. It, yeah. it, 
and it's, stuff it's out there. particularly worrying just as, as someone, thankfully I'm not in that market anymore, but just the, the, uh, the volatility of it all and the fact that you never know whether you can, you know, I've got two small kids and you never know whether you could, you could bring up kids in a rental property because you don't know at what point will the landlord just decide, right, I'm selling up, I was a negative equity and now we're back to peak prices so I'm which, selling and I'm gone. Which is happening. It's one issue that Michael T. Higgins perhaps didn't talk about, you know, a key issue five or six years ago, especially, I hate to say it, for probably Fine Gael voters was negative equity mm. and the housing disaster has probably been a boon for those individuals. Seconds, it's, yeah. it, it is a kind of knock-on effect. Um, but in, definitely in terms of the university, I know our students, it's a huge problem yeah. for students. Uh, one uh, tweeter into On The Record NT says, doesn't the President under the Constitution have to get government approval for any address to the nation? Aren't public speeches which are known to be televised addresses to the nation? It's probably, it's a, I mean, this academic is the point, point I was talking yeah. about. Also, is, is it an address, an address to the nation yes. or is it just a speech at a, at a do in Gildare? It's not know? defined, yeah. yeah. Um, now, let us move on. It is 11.45, uh, Gavin Riley with you, as I said, until one o'clock. We're going to talk a little bit about the Northern Ireland Protocol because I know, cover your ears, everyone, I'm sorry it's not done yet, but Brexit, or at least UK exit or whatever you'd like to call it, uh, is not quite done yet because, as we know, this week Boris Johnson and his government published legislation which attempts to nullify or disapply certain parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol. That's the unique trading circumstances that apply in Northern Ireland so as to avoid the need uh, for a hard border on this island. Uh, Shona Murray is your correspondent with Euronews. She joins us live from Brussels. Um, Shona, thanks for taking our call today. Um, I wonder, a few days removed after the publication of all of this, has the rhetoric settled down a little bit or do you think that Brussels is any more negative this weekend about the prospect of getting things done than it was a week ago? Um, no, I think it's it's pretty negative. I mean, there's almost no hope. <laughs> That's the feeling in Brussels in relation to the protocol issue because the EU has called on the UK to negotiate since February. They even offered a calendar, a set calendar of how you would negotiate the various issues and that was not uh, taken up by uh, the UK and also there's a realisation that this is really about UK domestic politics rather than the practicalities of the protocol because even if you look at the detail of what the UK is demanding, the so-called red and green lanes where you have you know, very few checks on goods going that are staying in Northern Ireland, that's what the EU had been offering with its so-called express lane. But in order to do that, they need the right amount of data uh, in relation to goods going into the north. So the point being in Brussels is that, is that this is um, not about practical issues, it's about politics and um, the, the EU therefore has no control over the situation. Okay. Uh, rewind there just a few seconds. If you're saying that this, this British proposal of green lanes and red lanes is actually quite similar to what the EU was already suggesting anyway, does that mean that there might actually be some some scope for negotiation about all of this even if the EU doesn't like the way that Britain has gone about it? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, the EU's position is that the door is still open. And that's why Mara Sefcovich this week, uh, in spite of the fact that the UK decided to set its own conditions about engaging in the EU's single market, um, it talked about further derogations, or at least within the scope of the Northern Ireland Protocol, where he said they'd managed to streamline uh, customs checks to uh, two pages long rather than the 80 pages or whatever that was required before. So that the door is very much open and nobody in Brussels wants to talk about the protocol or Brexit anymore. They want to do with the, the issues at hand, such as the war in Ukraine. So they really would like to get this sorted. The EU's position is that this confrontation is a waste of time. And uh, if the UK could sit back at the table and then get the whole thing resolved, they would even say that they would be happy for Boris Johnson to take a win. They'd be happy for the DUP to take a win. They'd, happy, they'd be happy for Brussels to be, you know, politically humiliated just to get the thing out of the way. Nobody wants to deal with it. It's a real headache and deems completely unnecessary. Is that maybe what the British government is going for, that they, maybe they're doing this at a time when they know that Brussels is board stiff of this ongoing impasse and that maybe if, if Britain just batters the door hard enough that Brussels will just kind of 
roll over and go, all right, fine, have your green and red lanes, see what we care, just to get the whole thing finished? No, because you can't just have the green and the red lanes without the proper data, without the EU knowing what's actually going into Northern Ireland. And that's the problem. That's why we had these infringement proceedings this week, the EU taking legal action against the UK for not giving the data required. Because these are, these are goods going into the EU single market that could find their way and damage the EU single market. And that was part of the agreement to share this data and the UK has failed to do so. So it's impossible for the, for the EU to just let the UK make, make its own decisions around what goes into the single market. The feeling is that if you don't have these regulatory checks on whether it's meat goods or crops that find their way to Spain or somewhere else, by the time you find that, the damage is already done uh, to the food chain or, for, for, or from an agricultural perspective. And that is something that the EU can't countenance. I mean, these are 27 member states that have their own economies. They're entitled to pretend, uh, protect the single market. So they can't just allow the UK to do, do, does what it, do what it wants. It's impossible. Mm. Um, just to put the shoe on the other foot and maybe just to try and see things from Britain's perspective, if, if Britain wants to try and get something done and, and you know we hear a lot from Brussels about it being open to negotiations, but all we really have is Brussels' word on it. They have a published timetable, but we don't know how sort of meaningful they want it to, to have a go at it. Um, if you are at the UK and you're saying, right, here's our proposals, let's go back to talks, and then the EU is saying, no, right, we'll see you in court because we're not having that. Um, is there maybe a case to be made that Brussels is amplifying the rhetoric too much, that maybe it's actually making a deal impossible to do? But that's not what the EU is doing. The EU is doing, is, is doing the exact opposite, saying, come back to the table any time that you want. We've been trying to have this negotiation. We'll do it in the morning if you want. The court issue is just because the EU can't lie down and allow uh, the UK engage in such a way that's unilateral and breaches international law. They would, as you know, those uh, the two out of or uh, two out of those infringement proceedings from this week were ones that were suspended by the EU. They had uh, had set them up in 2020 when the UK first breached the, the Northern Ireland Protocol. And they decided to forget about them, to let the negotiations breathe. Now they've decided to allow them to revive them and resurface them. So the EU's position is really just, can we get this issue sorted? Can we um, ensure that the protocol works for the greater good of Northern Ireland? It's not actually um, refusing to negotiate with the UK. What the UK is then saying now is that they want the dual regulatory system, which which is obviously much more bureaucracy as well. Mm. So. The, UK, the EU's position is really this is just about domestic politics, about being belligerent towards Brussels um, at a time when there should be stronger Western alliances. Um, I'm, I'm struck that the solution to all this bureaucracy is maybe more bureaucracy, but maybe that's the way we're going. Um, Sean, I know you need to rush off. Thank you very much for taking our call this morning. Sean Murray, Europe correspondent with Euronews, uh, joining us live uh, from Brussels there, 11.51. Um, I don't know if there's much of an appetite in the in the studio here to talk about uh, Brexit, or will we, will we move on to COVID instead? I think Hops you mentioned people really. abroad. I should just say, I'm hoping, you know, people talk about us having a unification referendum in Ireland, that we're learning these questions should have been asked before the referendum not post-referendum in terms of Brexit, you know, in discussing where yeah. the borders, etc. I hope we're learning from the mistakes made. I, I personally, I mean... So if we're going to have a, a unity referendum that you need to have some kind of a draft constitution figured up before you put it there... Well, and say, what exactly is going to be the implication? Are we going to have, you know, the NHS? Are those services going to be extended down south? Go through everything. So mm. everyone, when they're voting, knows exactly what's going on. I should say as well, there's a piece, I think, in the Business Post talking about, talking about Liz Truss. What we have to remember is this is a Tory party issue. The reason why we had the referendum in the first place was because David Cameron was trying to silence his Eurosceptics mm. and it remains a Tory party issue. 
Uh, we'll see what Michal Martin has to say about all of that uh, when he's with us in about 10 minutes time uh, in the meantime um, I do I'm afraid need to talk about COVID I've actually just pulled up the hospital stats in front of me there's 574 confirmed COVID cases in hospital uh, at 8 o'clock this morning that is pretty much in fact more than double uh, the figure that we had two weeks ago so it's clearly going up at a significant rate and even if half of those are incidental it is still a large uh, burden on hospitals um, and there's speculation Liz in the front of the Sunday Independent that we can't rule out the idea of having to go back to mandatory mask wearing and the likes Yes Stephen Donnelly has, has mentioned um, mask wearing again that uh, has raised its head once more unfortunately for a lot of people out there so yeah it's, it's been suggested that mask wearing may be suggested for public transport once more um, I think a lot of people out there have have kind of forgotten about their masks at this stage mm. but with COVID it's numbers it's, it's rising still, again It's still the official advice that you're still supposed to try and wear it in, in crowded settings you have to wear them in, in medical settings and you might be stopped at the door if you don't wear one in, going into a hospital but or a nursing home and I was in one last week and I was made wear one but you know you're not when you get on a, a bus or a, a tram or a dart or anything or a train in Dublin no, no one's wearing them anymore. Yeah, I think other than medical settings, as you said, there's no, yeah, there's there's no uh, pressure really to wear them at the moment. Yeah. Do, so, you, do you think the public would be on board if that was introduced again? I mean, I don't know what the criteria would be where, where some advisors say, right, now's the time to bring them back. You'd, you'd have to pass another law and that would be a whole other question. But I kind of wonder at this point, would the public actually be on board or would they just say, nah, sure, Omicron is so mild that I don't need to worry about it. It's hard to tell at this stage. I suppose if, if hospitalizations continue to rise and if, if case numbers keep going up and people see people getting sick again, I guess, as a self-protective measure, then some people will, you know, choose mm. to wear them themselves regardless. Uh, but yeah, it's it's hard to see that there'd be a huge appetite for it at the moment. Yeah, uh, the proportion of cases in ICU hasn't risen by exactly the same volume. It was uh, 27 uh, were in ICU at half 11 yesterday morning. We don't have today's figure yet, but it was 21 uh, a fortnight ago. So that's not rising at nearly the same rate for versus 574 people in hospital uh, who are testing positive for COVID-19 this morning versus 256 uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, Liam, um, it would be an interesting hypothetical debate to see the doll, especially with all the other legislation that might be going through in the next couple of weeks before the summer recess, if some minister had to go in and say, I want to reintroduce another primary law to force people to wear masks on trains or in public areas. Well, that's what happens in other countries that have had uh, pandemics. You think about Asian countries, they're regularly used to reintroducing masks. Um, it's just a form of regular social behaviour. If you have some kind of flu, anyway, if you're in Japan or, mm. or in Thailand, you just wear a mask. Um, that Maybe that culture hasn't, even though we had COVID for two years, that culture hasn't taken on yet in Ireland. I should say anyone who thinks COVID has gone away is living on a fool's paradise. This thing is going to be around for a number of years. And this is the summer when cases are supposed to be low. When they're, and showing they're actually rising again. So I'm afraid it's going to take off again in the winter because we know all these viruses take off in the winter when everyone's inside and the mm. heat and aircon and stuffy conditions. Um, so to be honest, anyone who thinks that masks may not be reintroduced might want to kind of rethink their attitude towards yeah, all that. Actually, on, on that point, actually, if, uh, if cases are, are getting as high as they are in a couple of weeks where people have largely had the windows open because it's been yeah. fairly muggy, then if, if we're doing this in times when ventilation is good and we have all these outdoor eateries that we didn't have this time last year, Liz, maybe it, it sort of doesn't bode too well for what could be coming down the tracks. Absolutely, yeah. Winter is a coming for sure in the future. That <laughs> 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 Game of Thrones reference. Um, a, a text from um, Joe to 53106 who says, I'm not a fan of Michael D. Higgins, but he was dead right to say it as it is. And somebody else who says, apart from the politicos jumping up and down, uh, does anyone actually listen or care to what the holder of the office has to say? Maybe on that final note, Liam, do, 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 will Michael D.'s intervention change anything really when it comes to housing? None. Of course it won't. When the president doesn't have those powers. Um, I think the, it's just the main thing is the president wanted to express a particular opinion, uh, which of course the government didn't like and which I'm sure can, uh, Michal Martin will, will have a lot to say for. The question we should be asking is, do we want the president? I've often argued this. We're paying the president a lot of money. 
You know, mm-hmm. why not give the president, do we want the president to have some powers to be able to rely, you know, as you mentioned, he's the only directly elected individual. Michal Martin is elected by the people of Cork South Central and the Doyle, but not directly by the yeah. people. Uh, I, I, I often just wonder why you directly elect this person and pay them an awful lot of money and then not use them. Look forward to Liam Week's draft constitution for the, <laughs> for the new United Ireland and see what he has to do for head of state. Uh, we're going to leave it there. Big thanks to both of you for coming in this morning. It's been great to have you. Uh, we must do this again sometime. Uh, Liz Dunphy, journalist with the Irish Examiner, and Liam Weeks, who's a lecturer in the Department of Government and Politics in UCC. On the record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PWC. Sunday morning at 11. On News Talk.